Welcome to MuggleCast, your weekly ride into the wizarding world. I'm Andrew. I'm Eric. I'm Micah. And I'm Laura. And on today's episode, we are discussing Chapter 16 of Order of the Phoenix, The Hog's Head. But first, we have some news and a little bit of feedback. Everybody still following J.K. Rowling on Twitter? Sure. (laughs) Don't everybody jump at once. Yeah. I haven't actively unfollowed her yet. Maybe I should get on that. Thank you for the reminder. No, no. Well, J.K. Rowling does seem to be back. I don't think we brought this up last week. I think um, we recorded before she got tweeting. But she announced on Twitter last weekend that the fifth Cormoran strike book is finished. And she took a picture of the script and it looks big. She didn't give a release date yet, but now that it's done, I would assume that it's going to be released by the end of this year. Here's the thing. I haven't finished Lethal White yet, I'm embarrassed to admit. Not because it's bad, but just because it's a big, dense book. Anyone else here read Lethal White? No, I'm in, I'm in the exact same position. Yeah. I was liking Lethal White, uh, but I stopped reading it. I finished it, so I'll uh, I'll save the group here. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'll, you- I'll definitely get caught up. So we don't have a release date yet, but I would assume it's going to be by the end of this year. And J.K. Rowling has previously said, I think she has more than seven of these books planned total. So this could be going on for a while. The other thing is, I had read an interview recently. Now, this interview was a good year old when I read it a few weeks ago. But J.K. Rowling said that she was going to be working on a children's book first before finishing Strike Book 5. So if that plan remains hmm. accurate, then she may already have a children's book finished as well. And it's, it's one she said she had lodged in her head for a while and she never uh, she just needed to put pen to paper and she was finally getting around to doing it. So I wonder and we brought this up in the Slug Club hangout last weekend. I wonder if she might have or might be about to secretly publish a children's book under a pseudonym like she did the Cormoran Strike series. And I think it would be more important for her to publish under a pseudonym, uh, publish a children's book under a pseudonym, because if she went out and published a children's book under J.K. Rowling, everybody is going to compare it to Harry Potter, just like they would have Corman Strike, but tenfold, because it's another children's book, you know? Right. Do you think at this point she'll be able to pull that off, though? Well, I think she learned from the quote-unquote mistakes in publishing Cormoran Strike. So now she probably knows how to really publish secretly without getting them. <laughs> I, I can't really see her going down that road again because I feel like she learned her lesson with Robert Galbraith. And regardless, it's going to come out at some point that she wrote that book and it's going to be compared to Harry Potter anyway. Yeah. What's the point in trying to cover it up? I don't think that she's finished this book. I think a lot of her time was sidetracked by having to rewrite the third Fantastic Beasts movie. And she was probably a lot closer to finishing the fifth Corman Strike novel. And that probably also got put on the back burner for a little bit. I would have thought that that fifth book would have been out sooner. I just love this idea that there's a secret JK Rowling book sitting on bookstore shelves right now. And we have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> One other piece of news we wanted to touch on and uh, I'm sure most of our listeners uh, know about it at this point, was the the tragic passing of, of Kobe Bryant last weekend. And uh, he was actually a very big Harry Potter fan. And he created a book series. I don't know that we ever talked about it or even mentioned it in the news. 
uh, on this podcast, but it's called The Wizenard Series. And it's written by an author named Wesley King, but he was ultimately Kobe, the one who had the idea to create this series. And he drew his inspiration from Harry Potter. And uh, mm. it's, I think, now a four book series. The fourth book is coming out in March. Not sure if that's going to change at all, given what happened, but. Uh, you know, I thought it was it was worth mentioning, and obviously, really sad uh, for me personally. Um, you know, with my job, yeah, his death was really shocking. And as you say, he's a huge Harry Potter fan. After his passing, I found this article from GQ from February 2015, cataloging every time he's mentioned Harry Potter in interviews. <laughs> and he's been a big fan going back to August 2007 when he said on Jimmy Kimmel Live that he named uh, his dog Dumbledore because his dog was all white. <laughs> so, <laughs> so yeah, he was a huge Harry Potter fan. So we thought we should mention that on today's episode, just the really mm -hmm. tragic and needless passing. So. Absolutely. And I'm sure he uh, wanted to instill the lessons of Harry Potter into all of his, to his four children. Mm -hmm. And this Wizenard series is about a basketball team, is it not? I'm reading the description here. Yeah, it's probably worth reading at least a piece of this description so listeners have a sense in terms of what it's about. Uh, it says, magic doesn't seem possible for the West Bottom Badgers. They're the lowest ranked basketball team in their league and they live in the poorest neighborhood in Dren. Nobody expects them to succeed at anything. So I think just a lot of ties to, um, you know, what certain individuals face uh, growing up adversity. And, you know, he was a big champion of youth and making sure that they all have the resources available to them that they needed. And he was a big mm -hmm. um, proponent of youth basketball, specifically uh, for young girls. And so I think that a lot of that is reflected uh, in the writing of this series. We also have an email here. This is from Isabella. I am Isabella. I live in Australia and I am 10 years old. I just wanted to ask you a few questions. So panel, let's just take these one by one. My first question is about Thestrals. So you have to see someone die to be able to see them, but didn't Harry see his mother die? So why did he only start seeing Thestrals in his fifth year? I think J.K. Rowling answered this, didn't she? It, it's something about the death really needing to sink in. Yep. And Harry was so young when his mother died. Even though he witnessed her die, he doesn't have like a clear visceral memory of actually seeing her physical death, which mm. he gets with Cedric in book mm -hmm. four. But to be fair, I'm pretty sure J.K. Rowling answered this before Isabella was born. <laughs> That's what I was just going to say, yeah. <laughs> well, she's also younger than our podcast, too, which I'm not sure yes. how that makes all of us feel. <laughs> oh, it's, it's, it makes a good, me feel... It's a good question, because it is a, a, a kind of plot hole. Even after Cedric Diggory dies, the empty carriages are actually mentioned at the end of book four. So yeah. in order to get around that or write around that, J.K. Rowling did say that it needed to sink in. So it's not until the beginning of year five that Harry starts seeing them. Next question. I have some more questions about time turners. If you went back in time, let's say a thousand years, would you still age? If so, what would happen? No, you would not age. From what we've seen, you don't change age at all if you're going backwards or forwards. Well, Time turners outside of the cursed child take 
uh, every time you turn them, it, ta- it go- takes you back an hour. So you would probably age while you were turning the thing long enough to go back a thousand years. Like that would take <laughs> yeah, you a couple okay, years. That's true. Unless but, there's super time turners that let you just turn once yeah. for an entire year instead of an hour, yeah. you know? Yeah. But then, then once you get back there, you would age as, as normal because time would be linear again. The interesting thing that I wish that JK Rowling had kind of did, but it's more like, I don't think she needed to ever touch on it, which is why she didn't. But like Hermione, because of all the hours that she spent doing over in book three in her third year probably is i mean at least a, a year older um than her birth date says because of the time that she spent living in the past and you know it's crazy because because if you go back like 24 times well that's an extra day that you've aged it, i mean it's no it, it's like inconsequential but like hermione should is technically if she did the math has like two different birthdays um because she's like a couple weeks by the end of the year let's just say she's a couple weeks older as long so as you're on top of this eric then that's all that matters because yeah i here, can't do the, the math here's the thing isabella and you'll learn this about life in general time turners <laughs> are very confusing and they'll just never make sense kind of like life i feel like time turners are something that would give you gray hair because it just seems like a a burden on the body to be traveling through time like this. Yeah, mm. I have wondered if there is some toll that using a time turner repeatedly takes on you. Um, there should be. Yeah. There should be a consequence. I, you know, I wonder in book three, you know, we always assume that Hermione's fragile mental state was due to the load of classes that she had. But I wonder if using the time turner so frequently had something to do with that as well. Yeah. Like it had it had to have thrown off her sense of time. Like we saw her getting increasingly confused about where she was supposed to be. And I wonder if that was more than her just getting confused about her schedule because she was being overworked. Mm, yeah. Mm. That's a great mm, point. Crackpot theory. <laughs> <laughs> All right. It's time for a quick break to hear from one of my favorite sponsors, Third Love. I've been wearing Third Love's bras for around a year at this point. I recently ordered a new 24-7 perfect coverage strapless bra to wear to a formal event, and I was able to dance the night away without needing to worry about coverage or fit, which can be kind of a struggle bus if you're not wearing the right bra. I was pretty amazed when I took their Fit Finder quiz online and subsequently received the best fitting bra I've ever had. That's because Third Love uses data points from the 15 million who have taken the quiz so far in order to make the best recommendations for you based on breast size and shape. And if you don't love it, every customer has 60 days to wear it, wash it, and put it to the test. Then return it for free and Third Love will wash it and donate it to a person in need. Third Love knows there's a perfect bra for everyone. So right now they're offering our listeners 15% off your first order. Go to thirdlove.com slash mugglecast to find your perfect fitting bra and get 15% off your first purchase. That's thirdlove.com slash mugglecast for 15% off today. It's time now for Chapter by Chapter. This week, we're discussing Chapter 16 of Order of the Phoenix in the Hog's Head. And let's start with our seven-word summary. Hmm. Micah. Yeah, I'm trying to think how I want to start <laughs> this thinking. off, though. 
We're going to start, we're going to add a theme song to this segment, and uh, it's going to be like Jeopardy, where we have 30 seconds to create <laughs> the entire thing. Shady. Happenings. Occur. Within. Aberforths. Dingy. Bar. Yay! Go. I was hoping you were going to say goat within Aberforth's goat, and then I would have said zoo or chamber or something like that. Goat chamber. <laughs> yeah, still, still no answer from J.K. Rowling on your direct reply to her, uh, Andrew, right? Yes. Well, we could talk about that in a moment once we get to the goat, mm. goat scene in this uh, chapter. Mm-hmm. But I want to start off just by asking, do you guys pay close attention to the chapter art when you're reading the books? Sometimes. Yeah. yeah. I looked at this one for In the Hogshead, and I couldn't believe what I was seeing. I never noticed this before. The chapter art depicts the Hogshead sign, right? But on the sign is a decapitated Hogshead. And okay, I get that. But there's blood surrounding the Hogshead, and it's sitting on top of, like, parchment to collect the blood. Mm -hmm. This is disgusting. (laughs) I mean, that's how it's described in the chapter. Yeah, this is a children's book. <laughs> Not anymore. Yeah. We're in, we're in uh, Order of the Phoenix, yep. baby. I was just like, "Wow, okay, that's really graphic." I mean, you don't see this in the theme parks. You don't see the blood surrounding the decapitated head. I was just like, "Oh my goodness!" Now you're making me think, though. What is there actually outside of the Hogshead in Orlando? It's a Hogshead, but no blood. And no but that's on underneath. the wall, though, right? When you walk in, it's it's beyond the bar, right? right. But, but on on the what, sign, what as about well, outside? On the oh, sign okay. as well, it's a hog's head. It's like a it's like a it's like a side angle, though. It's not like direct on, like this is. Anyway, mm-hmm. I was just like really disturbed by this. Like <laughs> something I had never noticed before. So, <laughs> I think it's just meant to add to the fact that this is a place that kids probably shouldn't be going to on the regular. Yeah, and I mean, if I was a vegetarian or vegan, I would be repulsed and I would never walk in here. I mean, I'm like a 90% vegetarian, 10% pescatarian, and I don't know that this would stop me from walking in somewhere. You wouldn't on principle? See, I would on principle. No, but I mean, I, I don't know. My my views are maybe different than than other folks. So I think this yeah. is a, to each their own yeah. type scenario. I'd be interested, too, to learn more about why it's called the Hogshead. That's very British, isn't it? You see bars that have weird names like this. Also, there is a preoccupation with hogs in the general geographical area. They're in Hogsmeade. There's Hogwarts oh, right. School up the hill. I don't think I ever made that connection before, but yeah, like there's something well, that maybe did. there's some native, <laughs> there's a native boar population. Well, right. That's probably like the backstory of hogs mead like it, it was a old boar farm and it turned into a village and yeah and they named it hogs mead and yeah it doesn't explain where the goats come from but if no. there were hogs then that makes sense they also oh, don't you worry mead. we're gonna talk about goats <laughs> and you know, i'm not trying to jump bit. the gun it just keeps coming up <laughs> well to start off the chapter though uh, harry's going through a bit of indecision trying to figure out whether or not he, in fact, wants to teach defense against the dark arts. And uh, Hermione kind of is needling him for, I think it's about 
several weeks, isn't that it? And uh, even though you know he doesn't want to do it on the surface, it's referenced that subconsciously he kind of digs the idea. And uh, I think if I were him, he's probably thinking in his head, "Oh yeah, check out my Patronus Cho." Uh, you know, like coming <laughs> up with things that uh, he can do to you know show off a little bit. Don't yeah. you think? That would get a girl for sure to be leading these classes. And I really like that Hermione let Harry think on this on his own for a couple of weeks, because if she were nagging him daily, that probably would have pushed him away more. Agreed. And and probably the more that he's experiencing umbrage over the course of these weeks, the more he is inclined to want to teach Defense Against the Dark Arts as well. Right. Yeah. So I was wondering, was there ever a situation that we felt that we learned a particular subject better from one of our peers than we did from a teacher? I will say for me, I've never been in this kind of situation. I have been in a situation where we had a really, really intelligent teacher. Like they themselves were very skilled in their field, but were not a good teacher. Mm. And because of that, we were all struggling. So we did form a study group so that we could try and learn this stuff together. Um, But that's the closest connection that I have to this. It's never been anything like where the teacher was completely incompetent and didn't actually know anything about the subject they were teaching. Mm -hmm. Well, what about podcasting? I mean, we're Mm self-taught there. We are. Personally, like I would say I was taught by I brought up meeting Leo uh, over the summer, my podcast idol. Oh, like I what learned a moment that was. <laughs> I think was, Eric I... and I just needed to vacate. Actually, everybody just needed to vacate the hall. It was just I didn't know well, what Andrew was going to do. No, I'm glad I'm, we I'm... saw it. I'm glad he didn't drop and fall over and faint because we would have had to carry him back to the room. But I'm glad you guys did too because I blacked out. I don't even remember what happened. <laughs> I had to have you guys retell the the story. No, but just learning through listening to other podcasts, I think, also taught us in a way, at least me. That's really interesting because I, I'm trying to think back to you know, middle school or high school if there was something that I was more easily able to learn from you know, a friend or a classmate than from a teacher, because uh, there are definitely moments where, you know, whether the teacher is just completely inept at what they're doing, or there's just another way of learning something. And maybe your classmate understands it better, and they can communicate to you in a different way, um, how to go about learning the subject. I was in, I th- it was very young. It was like before middle school, I was in like a chess club. Um, and it was fun because it was like peer taught versus being taught by a teacher. And it's not like a teacher couldn't teach chess, but the whole entire appeal was that it was, you know, fellow third graders. I don't, I don't know. It was mm. a long time ago. I'm not that great at chess in the end. So maybe I should have opted for the official tutelage, but, uh, you don't go to the park and play against old men and you know, that's I, not you. I, if I could, I could fall, see him doing that. Yeah. If I could fall into one Pixar short, it would be that one. <laughs> I think it's called In For the Birds, maybe. Yes. Yeah. That was one of their early ones. It was like a bug's life. It was like before a bug's life or something, but I would, mm. I'm a hundred percent that old man. Um, 
<laughs> no, what? No, I'm talking. There are kids that go and play against. Like it, it's it's good for fostering relationships. Um, I wasn't joking. Like I, if I were actually decent at chess, I would consider doing that. Yeah, it's it would be a really good time. Mm-hmm. I did also like that. J.K. Rowling noted that Harry was planning lessons in his head. Because mm-hmm. I think we all experience this a lot where we start letting our imagination run wild. Yes. And when you do mm-hmm. that in your head, when you're kicking something around, that's when you know that this is a good choice for you. Definitely. Well, let's go inside the hogshead where ultimately Hermione decides that this should be the place for the first meeting of Dumbledore's army and uh, wanted to take a quick look at some of the clientele. <laughs> is this what you do when you enter a bar micah you you size you gotta, everybody up yeah you gotta you gotta survey the scene you gotta see who's around you what's going on and uh who you I might think... have to fight <laughs> sure <laughs> just me okay uh, you get you guys have a very different approach to uh going in bars than i do i i look at the drink specials i think first <laughs> yeah <laughs> i'll start with the first individual and then uh how about Laura and Eric, you can read the other ones. Sure. There was a man at the bar whose whole head was wrapped in dirty gray bandages, though he was still managing to gulp endless glasses of some smoking, fiery substance through a slit over his mouth. So maybe it's uh, – what's the guy's name who played the mummy or who's in the mummy? Yeah, uh, Imhotep played by Arnold Vosloo. I'm also a mummy officiant. Yes, that's who's at the bar. <laughs> Check out Eric's mummy podcast. <laughs> yeah, he, he loves those movies. That's why I asked. Hey, those are great movies. They're, they're really good. Didn't know Eric was a fan. Then we also have two figures shrouded in hoods sat at a table in one of the windows. Harry might have thought them Dementors if they had not been talking in strong Yorkshire accents. Well, that could have just been an act, Harry. You didn't have to let your guard down over that (laughs) accent. Right. The Dementors are definitely linguistic masters. (laughs) (laughs) Love to go to bars. Can I just say what an awesome bit of world building that is, though? Just uh, the mental image of Mm -hmm. Dementors, but then the jarring aspect of a Yorkshire accent. Mm -hmm. I just imagine... Yeah, yeah, I'm I'm assuming that it's a joke, and I'm assuming that Yorkshire accents are a little off-putting to an outsider. I don't know for sure. I'm not going to Google it just yet, but uh, I don't want to offend anybody. But the it, it's deliberately meant to take him and it, it well it takes Harry and it's deliberately meant to take us for like a little bit of a huh <laughs> double take moment. Mm-hmm. For some reason, I imagine these to look like Sith lords. <laughs> <laughs> look, Dementors need a drink too every once in a while. So yeah, all if they're that- not getting soul, then they need some fire whiskey. <laughs> all that soul sucking is really soul sucking. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it must be. It must be. This shady character, it turns out, is, uh, well, I think they're all probably hiding something they're not telling, but uh, in a shadowy corner beside the fireplace sat a witch with a thick black veil that fell to her toes. Now, mm-hmm. we later find out that this was Mundungus Fletcher, and he's so covered up because he's technically banned from the bar and i know in a minute we're going to talk about aberforth and what just what kind of establishment he's running here but 
it seems to have employed a don't ask policy uh, mm. about its inhabitants. And so somebody like Dung is able to quite successfully hoodwink Aberforth uh, into coming back even long after he's been banned. And I don't know what act you have to carry out in order to be banned from a place like this. It's probably pretty bad, right? Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. This bar takes in everybody, so that's a good point. Dementors, apparently. Yeah, yeah. Yorkshire dementors. <laughs> but uh, I would assume that Mundungus was doing something that was even bad for Mundungus. We know that he likes to deal in illegal trading so i'm sure if he was utilizing the hogshead for that that aberforth would not be very kind to that type of behavior unless it was goats unless he was trading goats or maybe he did something bad to the goat let's you know i mean yeah that would be a goat himself Mm -hmm. i was gonna say it is a good thing that it turns out later that it is Mundungus because the word gets back to dumbledore quite quickly as to what harry is planning and i think we may have to look in the upcoming chapters for examples of Dumbledore making it explicitly easier as best he can for the group to operate. Now, one question I did have about this was, is Mundungus just there by chance or is he actually placed there by Dumbledore? And if so, how would Dumbledore even know that this group was meeting? I would assume that he was placed there because if he was banned from there, why would he be there? Does he just go there for fun to see if he can get around Aberforth? I guess that's possible. (laughs) I I think it's possible that he was placed there for a separate purpose and it was just convenient that Hermione decided this was the meeting place. Um, Just because we, we know from the past, like for example, this is where Hagrid met with a disguised quarrel in order to take the Norbert's egg, for example, right? Um, so there have been shady happenings that happen in this bar in the past. Right. And I could see Dumbledore very much wanting to make sure that this base is covered in terms of people trying to infiltrate Hogwarts. Yeah. Yeah. I, and I wanted to go back to something that Eric said about world building, because Order of the Phoenix is one of those books that really takes us to places that we may have heard about in passing, but now we actually get to experience them. I'm thinking about the Ministry of Magic, the Hogshead, later in this book, uh, St. Mungo's, right? So mm-hmm. this is one of those books where we finally get a chance to experience what these places have to offer. And man, the Hogshead definitely has uh, – some interesting things to offer us. Yeah, it's funny reading back this description of the Hogshead because my view of it is now what I see in the Wizarding World theme parks. <laughs> and it's attached to the three broomsticks, which I it's don't clean. think is canon. Yeah, and it's clean too, right? It's like they couldn't possibly make it. I mean, it's not like sleek and sexy. It is definitely a bar that you would see in suburban England um in like farm country but yeah it is noticeably cleaner and they've they've got that big hog's head behind the bar and it moves and oinks every few minutes it's definitely my one of my favorite places in the wizarding world park Mm -hmm. but if i were stepping into it in the book i probably wouldn't really want to be there no definitely not i don't know i love dive bars 
So I, th- <laughs> I think I would give this a chance. Laura, a chance. What, what constitutes a dive bar? Because there seem to be inches of filth on the floor in this place. Yeah, isn't that too far? Uh, uh, maybe, but I think it also depends on the interpretation of the person walking into it. I think it's very clear that Harry doesn't want to be here. Mm-hmm. Right? I don't know. I like places with character. And I feel like the Hogshead definitely has character. <laughs> so I would give it a try. True. That I would, I would, if I were to go into the Hogshead, I would probably bring with me my best um, counter jinxes for food poisoning and, uh, you know, some 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 kind of healing charm because it's dirty, it's dingy, and for some reason, Aberforth is wiping the glasses down with his own dirty rag, a dirty oh. rag that seems to have never been washed. Well, no, thank that. You. Flitwick, I'll bring my own glass. Flitwick yeah. did recommend bringing your own glasses. So he that's did. A great <laughs> what, what is what is going on? Does he know how is Aberforth in business? Is a question I wanted to ask. Like, yeah. this place this place trades on obviously less savory people coming and drinking. But if you can't even wash a glass, you should not be behind the bar, dude. Well, so like Laura, a lot of people like dive bars, and they have their bars that they're freak that they frequent. And I bet at one point the Hogshead was a significantly nicer place. And as time goes on, Aberforth does a progressively worse job of keeping it up. <laughs> and now he's at the point like, you know, maybe he owns the place. Maybe he doesn't lease it. And uh, he doesn't really need to impress anybody. And uh, he doesn't need to make a lot of money. So he has his regulars and that's fine. And then every once in a while, somebody comes in to form a group that they want to hide from the ministry. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'd play a bit of devil's advocate, though, and say that appearances can be deceiving, and this is probably exactly how Dumbledore would want Aberforth to be set up. We know that there's some tension between the two of them, and obviously when we first read Order of the Phoenix, we don't have the context for the backstory of what happened with Ariana, but I wonder if, because this is a magical world, that people see what they want to see. You know, they see a dirty bar, they see dirty glasses, they see a dirty rag, but maybe that's all a bunch of charms. Maybe that's just perception. And in fact, the glasses are clean, the floor is clean. I don't know, but maybe I'm taking it a bit too far. No, I don't think so, because I don't think the appeal of the hogshead is to go for their drinks or whatever food they might offer the appeal is that it's somewhere that you can go and be highly anonymous it's a good point i like that who knows like i said maybe the glasses look dirty but in fact they're not going to do you any more damage than drinking out of uh, a mug at the three broomsticks let's talk about aberforth yeah you love who, this guy we... <laughs> well we don't even know who he is right now he's just the barman right And uh, he sidled toward the trio out of a back room. He was grumpy looking with a great deal of long gray hair and a beard. He was tall and thin and looked vaguely familiar to Harry. Hmm, (laughs) Why is that? I wonder why. And I love that his first words to Harry was just, what? Because (laughs) this is the antithesis of Albus Dumbledore. Albus Dumbledore, well-spoken has all these amazing lines. And then Aberforth's first word is, what? It's just, just a perfect, 
A perfect uh, contrast. Yeah. And I mean, really throws you off the scent. Did any of us, when we were reading this book for the first time, suspect that this was Dumbledore's brother? Right. I didn't. (laughs) If Aberforth walked up and said, what do you want to drink? It is our choices. That's also who we really are. (laughs) That would have been suspicious. You must choose between what is right. That's a funny mental exercise is to picture Albus instead of Aberforth behind the bar. Yeah. It is noted that the bar (laughs) smelled of goats. And I wanted to know, and maybe this is a question for J.K. Rowling, what what (laughs) exactly do goats smell like? And would you ever walk into a place and say to yourself, you know what? smells like goats in here. (laughs) Well, I think – I was reading a couple of interviews because I wanted to get to the bottom of why Aberforth loves goats so much. And it seems like J.K. Rowling dropped that little descriptor in there as a throwback to Goblet of Fire when Dumbledore had said that Aberforth got in trouble due to the spells he was casting on a goat. So it, it was a connecting of, of the threads, if you will. It was a little reference for readers. So they... Mm-hmm. could be like, oh, is this Aberforth? Another goat reference. Then, then I think, to Laura's question earlier, maybe we should have been quicker on the uptake if Harry is saying that this man looks vaguely familiar to him and right. this place smells like goats. <laughs> right. I'm sure there were theories out there after book five was released that this barman was, in fact, Aberforth. Oh, for sure. But, yeah. But what do you imagine it smells like, though? Is it like when you go to a farm or a petting zoo? Yeah, yeah. Just that yeah you've, been to smell? A, you've been to a petting zoo. Go- goats do have yeah. a smell. And Micah, let's, uh, you don't have to pretend that you don't know what goats smell like. I mean, you obsess over goats yourself and you have, right, you have that goat. You know. Don't act like you're above knowing what well, goats smell like. That goat is plastic, to be fair. <laughs> oh, really? You yeah, don't it, say. It, it's, it's not scented. <laughs> Can somebody send Micah a scented goat, please? Yeah, we need to get on that. <laughs> I was just going to say that company that we uh, referenced for uh, the holidays, they should make a goat-scented uh, candle oh, that there you, you can go. purchase. Yeah, Laura would buy that. She loves a good dive bar with a goat <laughs> smell. Yep. <laughs> I'm afraid to Google it because I'm sure it probably exists. What, goat candle? <laughs> goat candle, yeah. Oh, I'm sure it does. Goat-scented. Let's see. Hold on. The most, the most interesting thing that I find about just how dingy and, and, and Aberforth being in charge is maybe it is all a ruse, like truly all of it. I mean, maybe Aberforth does have a thing for goats, but I was thinking back to what I said earlier in the chapter about Dung being there and telling Dumbledore about the, the Dumbledore's army. But now I'm concerned that I might be misremembering it. Maybe it was Aberforth who actually tells Dumbledore about Harry's group and and everything that happens. Like Aberforth, even in the even in the last book when Dumbledore was like, I'm not even sure my brother can read. There was like a funny joke about that. But like clearly Aberforth is competent enough that he can read and and he passes on. So it's just hit the platform to discredit Aberforth is and I don't think it's like a brotherly Mm -hmm. um rivalry i think he genuinely albus goes out of his way to pretend that aberforth is nobody is out of the picture is an oddball when in fact he's using aberforth to uh really as a spy basically Mm -hmm. yeah so 
Absolutely. I'm looking it up now. Dumbledore does eventually know about the meeting, but we don't know if he heard it from Aberforth first or Dung first. Yeah. But there's at least from what I'm seeing. Yeah, there's yeah. potentially two order members there. Yeah. And did Dumbledore know that the place smelled like goats? How much did he know about this meeting? <laughs> I would just like to point sh- out that I googled goat-scented candle. Same. And among the scents that came up was a butterbeer candle. <laughs> Smart advertising <laughs> by that person. <laughs> yeah, they, they were like, their, uh... okay, four search terms, goats. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Good so, SEO by that person. Right, <laughs> exactly. Also, uh, I, I've learned that there is goat milk soap by googling goat scented candle oh yeah that's a thing we're getting everything but a goat smelling candle unfortunately somebody make that for micah please (laughs) Mm -hmm. um but so the whole goat thing this is this has been a running joke here on the podcast um and i thought since goats are brought up in this chapter we should take a little detour what is going on with aberforth and goats at an event at Carnegie Hall over 10 years ago now, an eight-year-old asked J.K. Rowling, in the Goblet of Fire, Dumbledore said his brother was prosecuted for practicing inappropriate charms on a goat. And apparently when this kid said this, J.K. Rowling buried her head <laughs> and started laughing. <laughs> Wait, what were we there for this? Yes, 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 we were. Yeah. And the eight-year-old continued, what were the inappropriate charms he was practicing on that goat? J.K. Rowling said, how, are, how old are you? He said, eight. <laughs> jk rowling i think that he was trying to make a goat that was easy to keep clean curly horns that's a joke that works on a couple of levels i really like aberforth and his goats but you know aberforth having this strange fondness for goats if you've read book seven came in really useful to harry later on because a goat a stag you know if you're a stupid death eater what's the difference so that is my answer to you (laughs) and i still remember her going to you <laughs> so she has an she has an answer for adults and let's face it aberforth is sexually attracted to goats i mean that's absolutely what she is implying uh we did tweet her from the MuggleCast account a few days ago asking what is the adult answer to this question she has not replied unfortunately but everyone please like that tweet so maybe it floats to the top can of her she mentions. reply though i mean is is, the, is that um does it meet Twitter's terms of service? Can she say <laughs> what? I, I see he's a lot of graphic to? stuff on Twitter. I think I think that'll be okay. J.K. Rowling banned from Twitter for posting an answer to an old question about goats. <laughs> I'm retweeting our tweet right now. Maybe that'll help her notice it. Um, but yeah, so I it, it's it's funny, right? Like it doesn't carry the story forward at all. But like J.K. Rowling's got a weird mind sometimes. I don't think people give Monty Python enough credit in terms of its influence on this series. There's a lot of her humor that's very Python-esque in these books. And this is one of those things. Like, it's not a direct um, reference to Monty Python, of course. Like, the fact that the password to the Gryffindor common room was cockroach cluster, like, that is a direct, uh, like, tip of the hat to Monty Python, but this just feels very in line with that brand of humor. Mm -hmm. So I think that she was heavily influenced by that and that comes through in the books. It's just one of those things. If you're a child and reading this, you don't, you don't think twice about it, but reading it later, you're like, huh? Yeah. It's like when you go back and watch kids movies as an adult 
and you catch right. you catch on to all of the breadcrumbs that were left for the adults and you're like, oh. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, the other thing is, you know, if he's really into that, there's a whole forest full of centaurs that he could probably, you know, explore a relationship with. I think they of- would wreck him. <laughs> <laughs> like they do to Wait, Umbridge by the, the way, end of the book. So- Fan fiction. Was there ever <laughs> anything like that? No. <laughs> no. What about actually, with Aberforth and his goat? I got to imagine there's. I hope no. it was consensual. About that. That's I, all I'll say. Uh, can it be consensual? Can a no. goat consent? <laughs> no. Only if it's like a transformed goat. Only if it's like a goat maledictus. Somebody tweeted oh, us that you know, the goat was Credence. I just. Oh <laughs> yeah, yeah, that was a good theory. I can buy into that. <laughs> I just realized is is the reason that I got this goat because it screams and that's what yeah, yeah. Oh, every time you do that think of the plight of Aberforth's All goat. right, it's time to move on. Yeah. <laughs> you wanted to bring it up. <laughs> We've gone too far. So shifting gears, uh, let's talk about Ron and Aberforth. Not in that way. Okay. But he no thinks screaming. that he could swindle the barman for some fire whiskey. And uh, I was thinking you know, again, this is all about perception versus reality. Looks can be deceiving. I think it's highly unlikely Aberforth would sell anything to Ron besides what you know he could get, which would probably just be butterbeer. What do you guys think? Agreed. Yeah. Ron's, Ron's got a little chip on his shoulder for some yeah, reason. But he's too confident. He feels like maybe because the atmosphere is so relaxed in here and this is such like a different world to him, he feels like he could he could get it, but yeah, I don't think he could. You can ask for fire whiskey at the Hogshead in the Wizarding World parks, though, right? Mm. Uh, I think I, I so. Feel like, yeah. yeah. Is it just Fireball? Uh, <laughs> Probably. <laughs> yeah, or or whiskey. I think. Okay. I don't know. They have With a whole bar back there. Floated. They don't advertise it, but I'm pretty sure they've got like a full bar back there. Mm. I've brought well, Fireball yeah. to uh, the Wizarding World theme park. One of those little shots Flasks. of it. <laughs> um, no. You regularly keep a flask on you, don't you? Oh yes, I'm an alcoholic. No, but I've uh, I've I've taken a little shot of Fireball to the park with me, then pour it into my butterbeer, which of course is non-alcoholic. Mm-hmm. And they never made an alcoholic version because they wanted to taste the same for everybody, whether or not you're uh, a kid or an adult. Yeah. So um, yeah, and it's actually really good. It's perfect. I I, I don't want to say I recommend bringing alcohol into the park because that's probably not allowed, but Bring alcohol into the park and pour it into your butterbeer. It's really fun. <laughs> wow. Well, uh, Mike and I actually had a secret. We did one of the secret drinks at the Hogshead, didn't we? Yeah, we did. It yeah, was, it was. Uh, it was a um, version. There's a, there's a, see, there's a drink not on the menu, and it's a uh, Hogshead iced tea. I think I'm remembering that what correctly. Is that? It's like, yeah, is that ba- like official secret or is it just like that bartender who does it for people? You know what I mean? Uh, like. <sighs> I got the feeling that it was official unofficial. Okay. Right. We were were told about it by the person we were with and we all got it and it was amazing. And um, it's kind of like a long Island. Like it was, it's just, but it is a lot of different alcohols uh, as goes into a long Island. And so I do think they have probably like a full bar back there. Yeah. It set me up well for getting on the uh, Hagrid ride. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I bet. <laughs> Waiting in line, it's a breeze. <laughs> oh, I thought I thought you were going to say it maybe you nauseous. Maybe I had it afterwards because I, I think just, we all. I had think it, it was after. 
yeah, I needed a drink after that ride. But but that goes to your point, Andrew. They clearly do have a full bar at the Hogshead if they're making their version of Long Island iced teas. Which is interesting. I don't know why they do that, but they do. Eric, I know you wanted to talk a little bit about how this place stays in business. We touched on the the dirty cups and the crappy floor and Flitwick saying that you need to bring your own cup. But anything else you wanted to uh, trash on the hogshead about? I mean, occasionally when they have groups of 25 to 30 students who are dejected by the level of education they're receiving at Hogwarts, um, you know, it does a little boom for business, six sickles times 25, you know. Uh, Aberforth got a couple galleons out of them, but yeah, it just doesn't seem like it's a tenable, uh, business, um, what's the word strategy. Uh, the hogshead exists for the purposes of the story because it has to. Um, and we know that the, the, you know, it attracts an entirely different clientele, people who want to do the shady dealings that are good for the plot need to go there, but it doesn't, and, and, and Jake Rowling doesn't really touch on the fact that there are, it is an inn as well. Like there are rooms above it, which is where I think Trelawney had her um, interview and mm-hmm. Aberforth yep. again stepped in and grabbed Snape from overhearing the prophecy. Like Aberforth has been at the center of all of Albus Dumbledore's dealings for a real long time. And it's, it's very well concealed behind this facade. But mm-hmm. yeah, besides being Dumbledore's like secret base of operations in Hogsmeade, the, the Hogshead does not understandably stay in business. I don't think anything in Hogshead really is there to like make a lot of money, stay in business. You know, it's mm. just in these wizarding communities, everybody's just like, I don't know, following their passion, living their life. I don't know. Cut this out. This is stupid. No, I actually, I I honestly, genuinely, I genuinely felt that that was true when you were saying it. Yeah. Like, Mm -hmm. remember a few months ago, I said, like, everybody's, like, weird in the Wizarding World. Like, basically, (laughs) that's what's going on in Hogsmeade, too. Everybody's just weird. Yeah. Yeah. But I think they don't care about the Google reviews of of the Hogshead. You know, they're not doing things to get five-star reviews. (laughs) They're just doing it to make ends meet. Yeah, I would assume the Yelp review for the Hogshead would not be very good. <laughs> no, but there's, there's a uh, look, and I bet that they wouldn't take the Wizarding World version of credit cards either. I think that's a cash only bar. Um, yeah, so they don't have to pay taxes on any of that. Exactly. Exactly. Aberforth places, totally hates taxes. Sorry. Come on. I mean, there are places we all walk into where we say to ourselves, how does this place stay in business? And it doesn't have to be like a dingy looking place like this. I mean, there could be other places where you think to yourself, they still sell this, you know, or right. You know what I mean? So yeah. I, I feel like the Hogshead is is a version of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But let's talk about the formation of Dumbledore's army. There's quite a large group that shows up at the Hogshead. All of the Hogwarts houses are represented except for Slytherin. And I wanted to note that because I think it's important. House unity is something we've talked a lot about uh, as we've gone through chapter by chapter of Order of the Phoenix. Uh, And it's actually nice to see that there is pretty solid representation from both Ravenclaw and Hufflepuff. I like how you say house unity is important. And then you say, no Slytherins. That's nice to see. (laughs) Is it because, is it simply because they just couldn't be trusted? 
Yeah, I doubt Hermione would have thought that there was a single Slytherin that they could trust at this point. Is there a Slytherin out there that we would consider being a member of Dumbledore's army? If we had to pick one? Probably just the ones that we don't know about. (laughs) Right. Because any Slytherin that J.K. Rowling lives up, usually they just... She's doubling down on this idea that Slytherins are bad people. Yeah. Maybe Lita Lestrange. <laughs> okay. That's if she existed one. in this in this uh timeline. Yeah. At this point, the houses are so polarized that I don't know that they could trust anyone in Slytherin. And I don't think that it's inherently because as soon as the hat says you're a Slytherin, that means you're evil. I just think that at this point, there's just so much of a divide between them. And they're all like, as we see a little bit later in this book, Umbridge has Slytherins totally on her side. So I I think also we find out um, that Hermione wasn't that trustful of even the people she did invite these 25 people by signing the paper uh, that they do. She heavily jinxes that and doesn't, I think it doesn't effectively tell people that like what she's done. She kind of glosses over the fact that there's this huge magical enchantment, but it shows the level of secrecy that Hermione's employing shows that she's wary and that she really doesn't at this point trust even, even these house members. So bringing a Slytherin on was completely out of the question. We're in the very early days. This is a very sensitive subject and we can't risk it this early on. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, you can't really trust any of these kids, really. And we'll talk about this uh, this sign-up sheet in a moment, because that seems extremely risky as well. Yeah, absolutely. Putting your name down on something like this would definitely make me nervous. Oh, so, yeah. Hard pass. Now, this is something that Harry was concerned about from the get-go. And he says that Hermione had decided to display him like some sort of freak. Because of all the questions that are being posed to him, particularly as it related to what happened to Cedric and with Voldemort at the end of Goblet of Fire. Mm-hmm. I thought Hermione maybe could have thought a little bit more about how to get things going because, of course, people are going to want to know about Cedric. That is just inherent in, in anybody who is at Hogwarts and was there last year and is now there this year. It's definitely natural. And I think Harry needs to concede or realize that these people who want to know, and the the vast majority of them have showed up to hear this story, at least as part of a perk of going to this dingy bar, because why else would you? Um, he has to kind of concede that it's not just about, oh, this crazy Harry Potter um, who's been so officially discredited has to like let's get his side they genuinely are interested in figuring out what they don't know you know i I think that there's no malice like oh harry's a freak uh and needs to tell us like it's it's really because they're ready to listen and i think there needs to be a little bit of a credit given to everyone who did show up you know they're also getting rid of their their hogsmeade trip like they're they're spending it in here instead of at Sanko's or we, I mean, I know we know Fred and George already went there, but you know, to the other places they would go, they're giving up a Saturday for this. Yeah. I think we've touched on this before and I feel like 
these kids deserve to know. I don't blame them for wanting to hear directly from Harry. I think that's very natural. And I would want to hear directly from Harry as well. So I think in hindsight, maybe this could have been planned a little bit better and they could have just come out with the story. Harry could have just come out with the story right out of the gate. Mm -hmm. Got the elephant in the room out of the way. And Harry would have them in the palm of his hand. And he could easily get these people signed up for Dumbledore's Army. Yeah, I think also this is an example of one of Hermione's blind spots, which is that she's only able to see the desire to learn. So when she's communicating this opportunity to people, she sees them lighting up and she sees them being really interested and assumes that they're interested for the reason she's interested right? But she's forgetting the fact that she has such access to Harry that she actually knows what happened. Mm -hmm. Whereas something that was pointed out to Harry earlier in this book is, hey, all the school knew was that you came back holding Cedric Diggory's dead body and that Dumbledore told everyone Voldemort was back. Yeah. That's it. It definitely could have been a better job done on the part of Dumbledore in terms of informing the students of exactly what happened. But I think he also probably at the time didn't want to put Harry in the position that Hermione is putting Harry in now. You know, it's one thing to talk about it in front of 25 people, never mind hundreds of people. Uh, Maybe it's not Harry that has to do it, but still, and the ministry obviously wants to cover this up as much as possible. So Dumbledore and Harry are certainly not getting any help from them. But I also wonder if it's a bit of insecurity on Harry's part too, because putting aside what happened to Cedric, if he's to talk about what happened, it's another one of those instances where there's a bit of luck, right? Priorian Cantatum, I don't think he was expecting for that to save his ass, much like his ass has been saved in the other books. And so I thought it would be interesting because they do talk a lot about his accomplishments throughout the series. If we were to give owl grades to the things that he has done in these first couple of books, what grades would we assign to them? <laughs> okay. <laughs> so number one in Sorcerer's Stone is besting Quirrellmort by touching his face uh-huh. and rescuing the Sorcerer's Stone. Outstanding. That- That's an O. <laughs> oh, outstanding. <laughs> right out the He's- gate. He's young, first year at Hogwarts. He's already bringing down Voldemort. Outstanding. Mm-hmm. And and then with his touch, too. Voldemort right. was so ill-prepared to deal with that. Yeah. Yeah. Imagine having so much power with your hands. Okay. <laughs> Agreed. <laughs> How about killing the Basilisk in the Chamber of Secrets? Um, Let's not forget he had I some assistance. Yeah. I would give that Nick Seed's expectations. I agree. Yeah. Because we have to remember he killed the Basilisk, but he also destroyed a Horcrux. Right. And nobody expects you to be able to kill a giant snake. Well, when and like, one you can't you're 12 even look or 13. Direct- yeah, one you can't even directly look at. Right. Like if I saw that thing, I would definitely run away. So Harry's definitely a better person than I am. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But he does run away get- and cry. He does get mortally wounded from the encounter mm-hmm. uh, and would have died. So definitely exceeds expectations. Mm. I, but you have to give an assist to Fox, though. Because yeah, without Fox, to, it, Harry 
yeah, we, we're only we only have two books in this series. Mm. <laughs> I'll give an O. Those were to good Fox. books. Good job, Fox. <laughs> o for you. How about saving himself and Sirius from all of those Dementors in Prisoner of Azkaban? Outstanding. I would say acceptable. Yeah, I'm really? not as wow. impressed by that one. I'm more impressed by killing a giant snake and yeah. Voldemort. Yeah. But he he produces a fully formed Patronus, which is something that even adult wizards can't do. And he uses it to fend off a huge amount of Dementors. Yeah, but like, Laura, think about like doing that in the video game. Like, it wasn't that hard. You just hold A and then you press B <laughs> and you're done. Like... <laughs> It wasn't difficult. My argument is not going to be about the video game, but that's a good point. But my <laughs> argument is, I think it, it even though it's an impressive feat, we cannot fully attribute it to Harry because Harry sees what he thinks is his dad doing it. And when it, when it comes back around, he says that the happy thought he thought of that was so powerful that it crushed them all, you know, and scared all the Dementors away was the thought that he had already done it before. Which is cheap. It's not. It's not your. It's not the same kind of self fulfilled like luck or or or, or wonderful. Um, you know, dancing around the the swinging tail of a giant beast, <laughs> centuries old beast. It's not the same. It's just not. Mm. It's standing there and going. I have self confidence. Boom. Like <sighs> acceptable. Okay. It got him through <laughs> the book. It saved some lives. It was a good call. Oh, we're going to have to agree to disagree. Okay. <laughs> okay, we can do that. For Goblet of Fire, actually, two things. One is the completion of all the Triwizard tasks. The second is what I mentioned earlier, defeating Voldemort in the graveyard for at least enough time for him to escape and get back to Hogwarts. I would give that an acceptable. Okay, which part? Yeah. Both? Um, Definitely completing the Triwizard tasks. Because he had help from- Like literally with every single one. Yeah. Mm. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I would give him an exceeds for fending off Voldemort though. Yeah. Again, he was boosted by luck, but that you you are you're facing down the barrel of a gun and how Harry behaves is exactly the way that it like like I'm with Andrew. Like I would run away and cry. Anytime he faces Voldemort, that's an automatic O from me. <laughs> I heard that and in the just Simon Cowell voice, Andrew. It's an yeah. O from me. <laughs> <laughs> I was thinking Randy Jackson. <laughs> oh it's yeah, a no Ra- from me, that's, dog. That, yeah, yeah, it's an it's an O from me, dog. <laughs> Sorry, dog. <laughs> pitchy, pitchy. <laughs> yeah. uh, and then just to include one thing from Order of the Phoenix, defeating the Dementors in Little Winging. Oh, that was good. You know, in all these moments, Harry, poor Harry is acting, you know, with with virtually no preparation. No, he, you know, he sees none of this coming. And really, it's all O-worthy. Uh, but we're trying to think a little more critically here. Mm-hmm. So, I would give the Dementors at the beginning of Book 5 the O versus the Dementors at the end of Prisoner of Azkaban. Because in the beginning of Order of the Phoenix, he's drained. He's not a particularly happy camper, but he has to muster for the sake of his cousin's life. He has to muster up the ability to do a Patronus. And again, it's fully corporeal. And again, it kicks their asses. So I would say, again, that the Order of the Phoenix thing should get an O. And it's better than the Prisoner of Azkaban. So as this group is forming, there's a lot of back and forth with different characters. J.K. Rowling does a good job of of shining a light on Zachariah Smith and Luna and Ernie McMillan. And 
the bit with Zacharias is funny because I believe at one point Fred and George threatened him with sodomy. Oh my gosh. That, yeah, they kind of do. <laughs> I forget what they say they're going to shove up his, you know what, but uh, <laughs> it, it's probably one of their, their defective products. Yeah. yeah, there is a bit of humor in this chapter. <laughs> I I did want to call out Luna because uh, she's definitely not feeling Hermione at all so far in Order of the Phoenix. Uh, she mentions that Cornelius Fudge has an army of heliopaths. And uh, I think Hermione basically says that they're not real or that Fudge definitely doesn't. And Luna says, just because you're so narrow-minded, you need to have everything shoved under your nose before you – and I think it's Ginny that cuts her off. But yeah, uh, Luna coming through strong in uh, in this chapter. That's a good line, especially after Harry is asked to tell the Cedric story. Mm-hmm. And there's truth to that. I mean, Laura kind of alluded to it earlier with Hermione always being of the mindset of learning. Mm-hmm. And not necessarily thinking through things in other lenses. And I think Luna kind of, well, not kind of, she does bring that to light. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And but- I think that um, this this is how Hermione gets balanced out since she's not in divination anymore. Because the last character to treat Hermione this way was Trelawney. Telling her, like, you know, you... You don't have the inner eye. You're you you desperately cling to your books as though those are the only things that matter. And since Hermione's not in divination anymore, Luna's stepping in. I think mm-hmm. it's a good thing. Yeah. But I don't do yeah. we ever get it confirmed whether or not heliopaths are real? Um They're supposed to be these fiery spirits. Yeah. And I, I put a picture of one in there that in my mind, definitely would not scream Cornelius Fudge. No. <laughs> yeah, it wouldn't scream Fudge, but I think they they could exist within the universe. And here, here's the thing, at least for the Quibbler's sake, I hope heliopaths are really a thing that can kind of be around because it's double duty for Xenophilius to be publishing these allegations if you have to, one, believe that fudge is using them but to believe that they're even a thing that exists in the first place like it's so it would be so much easier for Zeno to publish like that something that it actually exists is what fudge is using you know what i'm saying yeah they look like something maybe death eaters would ride yeah that would be cool <laughs> it, it it would also be cool if these actually made an appearance in fantastic beasts J.K. Yeah. Rowling just subtly confirms yeah. that these are real by having them appear in that movie. That reminds I me, though. Isn't it the Matagoat or, or Matagos are the, uh, the cats that they are? They are spirits. They are spirit mm. beasts. So mm. I would I would actually say that Crimes of Grindelwald lends a lot of credence, not intended the pun, uh, to <laughs> the idea that heliopaths exist. Huh. Yeah, possible. I mean, to me, this just looks like J.K. Rowling's version of a rapid dash. <laughs> yeah, and then Ernie you know, does a great job of pointing out something we've talked about in the last couple of episodes. The fact that Umbridge is an ineffective professor who just is not preparing them well for their third year exams. And you get to see yeah. from the perspective of a Hufflepuff that that's important to them. They want to pass their exams. Yeah. 
time to sign the contract. Not in blood, <laughs> but yeah, this so, is scary, man. Yeah, I wouldn't do this. I wouldn't put my name on this piece of paper. This is a very, this is a group that could get in worlds of trouble if they were found out. And it seems really risky to be putting your name on this. I don't care how organized Hermione is. Crazier things have happened in the series. She could very well lose this piece of paper or somebody could make a copy of it and that could leak. Like, no, just no, I would not put my name on this. (laughs) Also, can we just talk about how not slick Hermione is here? Sure. She's very much like, uh, I think we should all sign this paper. <laughs> How should she have done it? I think that she probably just could, like, she's smart. She could have taken note of who was there and then applied oh, yeah, the jinx note. in yeah. some, you know what I mean? Like, there could have been a way to apply the jinx, I would think, that yeah. didn't require making people sign their names. Or maybe just first names or everybody comes up with a nickname and writes that down. Mm-hmm. And then you could still do a roll call with those nicknames later. Yeah, there's definitely some other options here. Or like (laughs) you have people sign it at the beginning of the meeting. I feel like people don't think as much about putting their names down at the beginning of something. But then at the end of it, when they're like, oh, this is kind of subversive. Right. (laughs) Maybe I shouldn't put my name on here. You want to hear what happens in that graveyard? Yeah. Put your name down. What happened? I thought you were going to tell me, Andrew. No, no. I'll tell you another time. When we're at I the think Hogshead. there's a level of defiance about it, too, especially for characters like Fred and George. They can't wait to write their names down. Right. Yeah. I, I think each of the students takes their own time getting to the mental state of, oh, this is fun, breaking all the rules. Um, but that's fine. Your mileage may vary. Like, people are they, – they what they are doing is technically not – well – it's not against the rules now, but as of the next, as of their first meeting, it will be, um, you yeah. know, they're openly defying umbrage, but they have to, the whole reason these people showed up is the possibility that they could get taught and really learn things that they all kind of agree that they need to know. They're all there because umbrage's lessons suck. Right. And the chapter really wraps up with there needing to be a decision about where they're going to meet how frequently they're going to meet so that there's still decisions that need to be made. Um, And what I found a little bit odd was the way that the chapter does end. And that's with them talking about these budding relationships. So Ginny being with Michael and then Harry and Cho, which we've seen building up over the course of these first 15 or so chapters but i just thought it was funny that harry turns to i think it's hermione and says about Ginny, oh is that why she talks now because she finally feels comfortable around harry she has a boyfriend and she's not (laughs) like enamored with him anymore yeah kind of i don't know i feel like it almost demeans Ginny's character in a way for harry to say that about her yeah. Am I, am I the only one? I think it also shows how little attention he's paying to her because yeah. she's really been out of her shell for this entire book. But she had a shell. She's out of it. It's, it is a funny falling action to kind of discuss 
uh, relationships and and how Cho lingers, how Cho lingers at the end of the uh, the le- like she's like gathering her purse or bags or straps or whatever, and even her friend Marietta is like, "Come on, Cho, come on!" But she's like wants to stay back so she could like I don't know wave to Harry or something. Watch, yeah, yeah. It's it's just kind of we've all been there. Yeah. <laughs> Something else I think that's interesting here is that we get Michael Corner and Cho Chang. Don't they end up getting together after Harry breaks up with Cho and Ginny breaks up with Michael? That would yes. be super convenient. I, yes. I think that that's actually what happens. No, it really? is. Yeah, I'm looking it up right yeah. now. Mm-hmm. Get oh me the God. fan fiction on that, Laura. <laughs> <laughs> so Harry's also- ex and Ginny's ex get together. That's, That's what totally happens. Unexpected. I mean, that's it's because when Harry was making out with Cho, he accidentally said Cedric, and everything <laughs> just went. <laughs> went that would be shit. me for sure. <laughs> um, but one other point to raise here before we wrap up the chapter, I, Eric, did you have this in here? It's how Michael Corner is referred to. Oh, that was me. I yeah. So he's referred to as the Dark One, which I don't think is aged well <laughs> to just call him the Dark One in the book. I wonder if this is, and UK listeners, I'd be really interested in your feedback here. I wonder if this is cultural um, and that it's not necessarily intended to refer to race, but rather somebody with dark features. So like Eh, dark hair, dark eyes. It's possible. Um, Because this is definitely how he's cast in the film. Because I looked right. up, the, I looked white. up the actor, and he is white, but he has very dark hair and dark eyes. And I wonder if this is a way that you commonly refer to somebody who just has darker features. On the other hand, the movies did switch the race of some characters. Yep. So it wouldn't surprise me if they just but cast also, him incorrectly. I'm also not sure that the books ever explicitly state michael corner's race at all apart no. from this descriptor and she jk rowling never shied away from describing dean thomas as black for example so i'm not sure why she would openly say like dean thomas was black and then be like michael corner was the dark one you right, know like right. it just it feels like a a disconnect so i'm wondering if this is intended to refer to something different than that just to play yeah. devil's advocate a Could little also bit. just mean emo and like I've described yeah. you as the dark one, Laura. Oh times, yeah, because no, I, you're emo as hell. <laughs> I was such an emo kid in high school, and I'm still an emo kid in my heart. And you can't take <laughs> it away from me. All right. Yeah, I don't know if it applies to emo, just because we don't know Michael very much. Yeah, at I'm this just point, kidding. so appearance would be probably the only point of reference that we have. He's the uh, dark one it- who heads into the Muggle world and shops at Hot Topic. Mm. Hell yeah. It's also not good because the only other quote unquote dark reference that we really have in terms of referring to somebody in this series is the Dark Lord. So, yeah. Um, not yeah. a good move, probably, by J.K. Rowling here. So, all right. Well, that does it for chapter 16 of Order of the Phoenix. Time now for the Umbridge suck count. Somebody put something here. Yeah, I did. We touched on this a moment ago, but the fact that all these people show up, like, Umbridge sucks so badly. Her classes are so ineffective that 25 people who don't know each other all show up at the mere whisper of there being an alternative educational option to a bar that's weird 
and dingy, and they give up their Saturday to do it. So I say we should add to the Umbridge sock count because she is clearly, it's not just the trio that she's not reaching with her, I don't know, the usefulness of the subject matter, but across grade levels, Umbridge sucks so badly that all these people are like, oh my god, we need to start learning. We're not learning a thing. Does that mean that the Umbridge suck count is now at 28 or 52? (laughs) (laughs) I think we should. You only have to play it once, no matter what, but I think it's a fair question. I think just one. (laughs) Up by one. I think that there is enough suckage coming throughout the rest of the book that we don't need to inflate the score at this point. Yeah. So let's add one to the board. <laughs> oh my God. And now let's connect the threads. A couple of small threads in this chapter, but they are really interesting. The first one is about Sirius. Um, Harry feels a pang at making his first Hogsmeade trip of the year. This is because he's recently told Sirius not to come to Hogsmeade to see him because he's afraid that somebody will recognize his animagus form. Um, but Harry's now remembering when he lines up to go uh to to the village that he wouldn't be going if it weren't for the fact that Sirius had signed his permission slip in the third book. The other thing that kind of jumps out at me here is this whole environment of, you know, a student-led resistance in the hogshead. Sirius would have loved to be here for this. Mm-hmm. And I think that given the opportunity, he would have done a better job emceeing this whole thing than Hermione did. Um, Just because Sirius has this experience with the Order. So I think it's one of those moments where he couldn't be there, but Harry really felt his absence. Um, So kids, you want to be a rebel. Let me teach you about that. (laughs) Except for the fact that the going to Azkaban part. Don't do that. (laughs) Don't go that far. And then also the Hogshead is a really important thread to connect to other moments in the series, particularly the fact that this is where Dumbledore met Trelawney all those years ago and where she gave the iconic prophecy that kicked off all the events of this series. Cool. All right. Time now for MVP of the week. I'm going to give it to Hermione for putting this whole thing together in the first place. Yeah, it worked out. Mm Mm-hmm. I'm going to give it to Ron for mostly making sense and keeping the meeting on track. He's the one who really, uh, with the assistance of Fred and George, whips people into line and keeps the focus on the goal at hand, as opposed Mm -hmm. to being obsessed with what happened to Cedric Diggory. So I'll give it to him for being a good friend. Even though he's not a great brother in this chapter, he is a good friend. I'll give my MVP to the guy who has the best dive bar in Hogsmeade. Heck yeah. Aberforth. And uh, <laughs> he's hosting the first official meeting of Dumbledore's army. I think I think the meeting happens in spite of him entirely, but okay. Um, I'm going to no give it to- No hogshead, no meeting. Yeah. Okay. Oh, actually, you've convinced me. Okay. That makes sense. <laughs> Thank you, Aberforth, for doing the bare minimum to uh, uphold and maintain this establishment. Thanks um, for keeping the walls up. Yeah. <laughs> Which with magic is so much easier to do. Yeah. Um, I'm going to give mine to Ginny for rounding up some more people for the cause. Um, Michael Corner, of course, but also his two other Ravenclaw friends, Anthony Goldstein and I forget the other guy, but uh, he, Terry Boot. Uh, But they, uh, that's a situation where Hermione did not reach out to them. It was actually Ginny 
talking up the meeting. So Ginny was actually a really good um, hype man uh, or hype person for Hermione's idea. So I thought that was a really good uh, moment of them working together. I think it'd be a great running joke if you gave the MVP of the week to Ginny every week, <laughs> even if like she wasn't even in the chapter, but you just like grasped for straws and like is it tried thin to come up here? With I think she really did. The- no, no, no. Okay. But it okay. just made me think because you're a Ginny fan, it'd be funny. Yeah. And anyway, um, let's rename the chapter Order of the Phoenix chapter 16. The greatest of all time, otherwise known as the goat. <laughs> Get it? Double meaning. Got it. I was really proud of that one. Trump that up at 530 this morning. Yep. <laughs> I'm going with Order of the Phoenix chapter 16. These kids are not slick. <laughs> <laughs> Order of the Phoenix chapter 16. Goat. Please censor that. <laughs> Just okay. censor it with the goat screaming. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> <laughs> Harry Potter and the Order of the Phoenix, Chapter 16, where nobody knows your name. I love it. If you have any feedback about today's episode, send it on in, mugglecast at gmail.com, or go to mugglecast.com and use the contact form. We also love to hear from you, really hear from you. So record a voice memo on your phone, if you have a moment, and send that to mugglecast at gmail.com. All right, it's time for Quizzage. Yes, last week's question, what does Luna say Fudge's army is made out of? Real cool to have this opposition happening during the time that they are forming an army. But the answer is, of course, heliopaths. We mentioned this during the chapter discussion. Whether or not we believe they exist is another thing. But uh, correct answers were submitted to us over on Twitter, as usual, by people, including Andrea Freezer, King of Kings, Jason King, lots of kings, Samwise Potter Skywalker, <laughs> Count Ravioli, Hannah E, The Cat's Pajamas, Reese with Outer Spoon, Michael Not Eric, and Tara. Michael Not Eric. Like what did I just say? Yeah, so, somebody's Michael. name is Michael Not Eric, and they're at Michael Not Eric on Twitter. All I wonder right. if that's a, a reference to Alohomora. I'm not sure. Nope. It says <laughs> I am Michael, I like stuff. Okay. Interesting. <laughs> I like stuff too, Michael. That's weird because my I like stuff too. Yeah. That's weird because my Twitter bio is big fan of stuff. Oh, maybe he's uh, maybe you're his role model. Huh. Anyway, what is next week's question? This next week's, week's question. Next week's question is an interesting one. A moment I completely forgot occurred in the books, although there are many. To be fair, who visits Harry during History of Magic? Huh. Harry gets I a visitor know. next chapter. It's crazy. All right, coming up in bonus MuggleCast today, we're going to play an old favorite, Make the Music Connection. We haven't done that in a while, so we're looking forward to doing that. And I think we're going to connect these songs to Order the Phoenix. So this will be fun. And I'm a little scared because we haven't done this in so long. You can (laughs) listen to that over on Patreon, patreon.com slash MuggleCast. You get two bonus MuggleCasts every month. And you get a lot of other benefits as well, including access to our live streams. You can join us on Saturday or Sunday morning each week and tune in as we record. You will also get this year's physical gift. You will also get early access to our show notes. You will also get early access to the episodes themselves and a whole lot more. At this point, if you pledge, you're going to have access to four years of bonus material. So there's a lot there and it'll keep you entertained for a while. 
Also, by the way, we have some new artwork that we made. Check it out on our social media channels. And we were able to get that made thanks to our listeners supporting us via Patreon. It's because of that support we get to do cool things like this. We made this new artwork to to reach new audiences. We learned at Podcast Movement, which was also funded by Patreon, that we should have some artwork or some photos depicting our smiling faces together. And we said, wait, we would actually have to get together to take a group photo. To heck with that. Let's just get some artwork done. And it was a win-win. We didn't have to see each other. And we got some beautiful artwork made. Yep. Just the way we like it. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks to Emily Cardamus for that. Yeah, she did a great job. Check it out on our social media channels. And it's it's littered with Easter eggs, including a goat. So we we hope you enjoy that. Again, patreon.com slash mugglecast is where you can support us. Thank you. We really appreciate your support. Thank you, everybody, for listening. I'm Andrew. I'm Eric. I'm Micah. And I'm Laura. Goodbye. Bye. 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 Bye.